I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 33. Today in the show, we're recapping the final hunts of our rut vacations, and then discussing our lessons learned over the course of the 2014 rut. Enjoy. Alright, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. And as I mentioned, today on the show, Dan and I are looking back at the past few weeks of hunting during the 2014 rut and discussing our lessons learned. But first, Dan, how are you, my friend? You know, I got a little bit of uh, tree stand withdrawal uh, this week. (laughs) Uh, Coming back to work was easy but hard, if that makes sense. It was easy because I'm not suffering out in this cold weather, and then uh, it was hard because I would rather be suffering out in this cold weather. Yeah, I uh, I can relate. It's um, gosh, it's one of those things that you dream about it all year, and then you right. get out there and you're freezing your butt off, and you're like, oh my gosh, this is miserable. And then as soon as you're done with it, you wish you're right back out there. Right. And I don't know, my reality is slowly sinking in to where my hunting season, for the most part, is over. Uh, I may make it out for a late season uh, hunt, um, but, you know, historically in my area, once the shotgun hunters move through and the crops are out, they go other places that are not my property. So, um, for the most part, I'm done. I can't go hunting this weekend or next weekend, and then the weekend after that, shotgun season starts for three weeks in Iowa, and then after that, it's pretty much, uh, unless you have standing crops on your property, uh, you're you're out of luck. Ugh. Yeah, that's um, depressing. Yeah, it is. Man, I tell you what, this season went by so fast, too. It just seems like it went by a lot faster than normal. I know. I feel like every year goes by faster than the last. It's just, uh, I think, I don't know, but maybe it's partly because I feel like every year I'm working more and harder all throughout the rest of the year leading up to the season. Right. And so all that buildup, I think, makes the actual execution of it, the actual hunting season, then just fly by. Right. And I think a little bit of that has to do with, like, 
you know, to elaborate on what you just said is we're preparing so much for the season that when season does come, it's actually easier for us to hunt because we've done so much prep work. The state, some of the stands are trimmed out. The only thing we're doing is the actual hunting and that that's the easy part, you know, and when it's easy, it kind of goes by faster. Yeah. Yeah. True. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I'm right there with you in that it's this weird and crazy buildup to this point. And then all of a sudden it's, it's gone. And I'm, I'm feeling like definitely my season's on the downward spiral too, really fast here. Um, yep. you know, I'm, I'm tagged on Ohio, which is great, but here in Michigan, you haven't been able to get things to come together. And the farmer, um, who farms a couple of the main properties I hunt here in Michigan, disked up all the crop fields around my properties. Um, so there's not a whole lot of good late season food left over. Um, yep. so I'm concerned about that. I've got on one of the properties I hunt, I've got some, some good, some decent late season food plots I planted, but those even are getting picked over, especially hard this year, I think because the farm fields are out. So I'm concerned about what kind of food I'm going to have, you know, in the, in December and, and what that'll mean for my hunting. And I'm, I'm a little bit worried about what's going to happen these next couple of weeks. Right. It's just, uh. It's one of those things where after this rut kicks in, you know, uh, let's see, today is the 18th. Oh, I'd say last year I rattled the deer in on the 24th. And after that, it just kind of dried up. The, the scrapes start drying up. The, the sign goes away. They go back into their recluse type of, you know, solo lives where they don't care about anybody but themselves. And, uh, then you just got to try to be smarter than them and catch them going to a food source. Yeah, it's it, it, and we'll, I'm sure we'll dive into this deeper once we get um, into December and we really start talking about late season. But um, but man, it, that time of year can be really boom or bust. If you've got the food, right, it can be incredible hunting. If you right. don't, it can be really slow. So I guess that's something. Like I said, we'll 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 tackle that subject later on. Um, and, and maybe we'll have some, some better stories to tell about what's to come from our season. But I'm glad that you're back at it. Excuse me, back at home. And hopefully the wife's glad to have you home and all is well on the home front. <laughs> right, right. Everybody's happy to see me. Um, you know, I'm glad to see them. It was, uh, you know, two weeks of with, without the family. And that's, uh, like I mentioned to you, I think on a phone call, it, it gets a little tough. And, um, but, you know, in the back of my head, I'm still thinking about, you know, the deer and what I should be doing or what I could be doing or if I should maybe ask the wife if I should go, if I'm able to go hunting this weekend, which <laughs> uh, I, I know the answer to that. And I'll get an answer that somewhere along the lines of, I guess, if you want to put your family second, you oh, know, gosh. <laughs> one of those. That is the worst. <laughs> so. So I don't think I'll even ask. And, you know, for me, I marked this season up for a loss anyway. I don't, I don't want to say a loss, but as far as hunting was concerned, just because, uh, you know, I had obligations to film my buddy Ryan. And um, I knew I wasn't going to get the time in the woods that I typically do. And that was 100% okay with me. So there's always next year, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And it'll be here before you know it. We're going to be, in a matter of weeks here, we're going to be talking about the 2015 season, and that's pretty crazy. Yeah, that's nuts. Well, um, 
you know, what I was hoping we could really focus most of our conversation on today, Dan, was talking about what we learned from this past, you know, two, three weeks of hunting during the, during the 2014 rut. But before we get to that, I did want to quickly, you know, recap this last week of hunting. Since last Tuesday, I know you still had a few days out there hunting um, in southern Iowa, and I still had some hunting here in Michigan. So um, can you maybe recap how the end of your and Ryan's vacation went, and then I'll, uh, I'll detail what I saw here. Right. Let's see. I think the last time that we talked, uh, you knew that Ryan missed that giant um, yeah. 180 class. Yep. Well, we had two more since then. We've had we had two more encounters with him. Um, one at about 80 yards, working a fence line down a draw into one of the bottoms, and then the second time at 40 yards um, on another trail. The the doe came through, um, and then instead of taking the shooting lane, she went through some really uh, some weird angle, and uh, he followed. So. Um, uh, you know, on a, on this, this old two track that has scrapes on it absolutely every year. And uh, so, you know, typically we don't hunt it because a majority of the pictures on our trail cameras are nighttime. Right. But this year there was a lot of daytime activity on these scrapes. And so we were like, hell, why not? Let's just throw a stand up, you know, trim out some shooting lanes. And sure enough, we had a lot of encounters with a lot of uh, three-year-olds um, one four-year-old at a distance, uh, the big boy that we called No Show Jones, and um, so that was uh, a lot of deer cruising through that area. They hit the scrape and they move on. Hmm. Uh, other than that, um, we saw three more shooters. I guess you would say considered shooters. We saw a buck who we thought was No Show Jones looked a lot like him, but when we compared the pictures the rack was flipped. So on no, uh, on the no show Jones buck that we were chasing, he had, um, let's see, fought, uh, six points, six. He was a mainframe six on his left side. And this buck was a mainframe six on his right side. And he had sh- a little bit shorter times, but he was still in the 170 class. Definitely a shooter, huge bodies. That same night we saw another four year old with, I guess he'd go, close to 150 with tons of junk off his bases. And um, we had another deer that next morning. Uh, we saw same stand the next morning in a, a, a very popular bedding area. And he didn't, he didn't come into rattling. He was a four-year-old, probably between 140 and 150, 10-pointer with uh, cr- crab claws that if you look – if you look at him from the side, you'd never know that he had more points. Then if you look forward, he's got those crab, uh, crab claws that face in, if you know what kind of deer I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. So um, we were – and I'll tell you what. Throughout this whole rut, we were definitely in the right place every time. Just the wrong deer would come through. I mean we played that cat and mouse game like a lot of us do where we're checking trail cameras here. Oh man, big buck on here last night. Let's go hunt this stand the next couple of days, see what happens. We go there, we see our three or four year olds, and hell, we may have even seen the the target buck that we were after, but not close enough to shoot. So we go check another trail camera in the locate the in the location that we were currently that, that we were previously at, big boys back. We gotta go hunt this, you know, daylight pictures. 
we go, we hunt it, we see the deer again. It, it was just bouncing back and forth, just never there on the on the right time. You know, never those two lines never really crossed except for the one shot opportunity that we had at the the one eighty. Man, I mean that's got to be equally fresh. I mean, it's got to be exciting the fact that you're in the game, you're seeing right. these big bucks, but equally frustrating to be so close yet can't quite pull it off. Right. How and- how many different Three and a half and older bucks do you think you guys encountered over the course of these two weeks of hunting? Oh, three and a half year olds, man, I don't even know. I, I, I'll, I'll just start at four years old. We probably saw, oh, geez, two bucks that were six or older, um, maybe four or five four-year-olds, and then, and then the rest, I guess, would be older. So five, five six, and maybe one seven-year-old. Um, all at a dis, all at a distance, but a majority of the bucks that we saw were two and three year olds. And I tell you what, going in, I you know I asked Ryan, hey man, what's your goal? He said, I'd like to get a four year old, and I'd like to get one in the one forties. Uh, we never really had an encounter with with that tip kind of deer uh, within shooting lane. And I'll tell you what, he did pass. A really good buck that was probably a four-year-old and 140, but it was really close to the time after we just had that encounter with the big boy. Right. So he kind of went all in on uh, No Show Jones, and he hunted real hard. We were both in the tree, and I mean, we didn't we didn't skip a day hunting or a hunt, and for the most part, we were in the tree. And the only time we were really out of the tree is to switch stand locations. And, and we, we hunted our balls off. Yeah. Well, I got to commend you guys for, like you said, hunting like crazy. I, um, I know that's not easy. And I had one of the seat, one of those seasons this year where I actually was out of the tree a lot more than I am. Um, I was moving stands then in Ohio, you know, the second day of my season in Ohio, well, second hunt during the rut I killed. And then the next two days, um, I had buddies down there that had shot deer. So I was tracking deer two more days and then hunt a couple more days and then was home. And so it's kind of a weird rut for me. I didn't hunt as much as I usually do. So I, I don't feel like I, I put in quite the grind, um, that some ruts are, but I guess it was for good reason. I'm, I'm glad that I, you know, I didn't have to grind quite as much as I did, but I know that's not easy. Um, but man, how's, how's Ryan feeling after all this? Well, I just got off the phone with him. I, I called him after I got off work today, and uh, he was playing with his daughters, and he was sounded pretty happy, but he, uh, he goes, I'm going to tell you what, I think about that shot all the time, like all the time. And I'm actually going to post the footage of it here. As soon as I get um, uh, all the editing finalized, I don't know if it's going to be this week or next week on the Nine Finger Chronicles, I'll be uh, posting – um, basically highlights of all the deer that we encountered and the encounter that we had with the, the big boy. And, um, and you, you can, you'll be able to see, I don't blame him one bit for missing the shot. I mean, he's never had an encounter with a deer that big. Heck he, as a hunter, he was passing deer that would have been his biggest buck ever this year, just because he knew what the possibilities are. Uh, hunting Iowa. And I really commend him for that. Um, he, he even told me, and what I told him at the very beginning of this, of this season, I said, dude, you can shoot whatever you want. 
and he was passing deer that a lot of people would have shot. And, um, I commend him for, uh, for, for passing those deer. And he even said to me, he's like, man, I don't want to walk into someone's property that I, you know, like yours and, you know, shoot something that you wouldn't necessarily shoot. I said, man, but you've, you've never shot a, a, a deer as big as what you're passing. And he's like, you know, I just, he, he had really high expectations and he, he ended up eating his tag just like I did. And, um, I think he was prepared for that, which was good. Now, does he regret that at all? Now, after he's eaten his tag, does he wish he had taken a shot at one of those one thirties or the one forty that he had that close call with, or is he, is he comfortable with the decisions he made? You know, that would be a question you'd have to ask him, but after talking with him, I would probably say no. Um, because he had an encounter with an animal this year on three different occasions that, you know, not just, not just that buck, but two other giants that, uh, that people just don't see in throughout the rest of the U S and, you know, like, again, I'm not here trying to brag about how good a property I have or because there's a lot, there's a difference between catching a deer on trail camera, which we did a lot of and killing them. And that's a huge difference. And that's where the, the, the hard part of hunting comes into play. But I think he is happy with the results of his trip, having the encounters that he had. I think he would have been more disappointed if he came to Iowa and had a lackluster season where he didn't see a lot of movement with which we saw a ton of and, and didn't have the encounters that he had. Yeah. Well, I mean, to your point across pretty much anywhere else in the country, in, in almost all instances, you're just not going to see that kind of number of big deer. I mean, what right. you said, it sounds like you saw eight to 10 bucks over four years old and who knows how many three-year-olds. I mean, I won't see that many mature deer in two or three years, even hunting good spots in Ohio and Indiana and Michigan and, and all that. I mean, you're hunting some world-class properties there. And so I imagine just those experiences and seeing those kind of deer. I mean, I would love just to, to have those types of encounters and experiences. So I can see why, uh, I can see why it was still a worthwhile trip for him and something he would really value and enjoy. And those will be memories for a lifetime. It won't be, that's, won't be venison in the freezer, but it'll be, it'll be memories that he'll be able to carry on for a long time. Yep. And it's on film. And so he'll be able to look back at that over the years. One quick thing I want to tell you is, so Ryan decided to pull an all day hunt, one of these cold days, one mm -hmm. of the last cold days. And I don't have the, I honestly don't have the gear to hunt all day sits in this, in this really cold weather. Um, so, you know, I was layered on with those adhesive hot packs, but even after, uh, after a while I told man, I'm going to get out, I'm going to go warm up. So he stayed in the stand and that was actually 20 minutes later is when he had a, an encounter with, uh, the big boy again, after I'd left. And so I went back to hunt in a different location as I was pulling a trail camera. I watched one of our target bucks come off of a ridge. So I ran back all the way back to my truck <laughs> and I got my bow and I ran all the way to the stand. Um, in, in this stand where I thought I might have an encounter with him. As I'm creeping down into this stand, I bump Mark Kenyon and, and a, a doe that he was with. And I'm like, I am set up 
because if he comes back through or if I see him tomorrow morning, I'm getting this, I'm getting Mark shed back. That was like the first, <laughs> the first thing that I thought of. So, <laughs> so um, yeah, I mean, out of, you know, we put together a hit list at the beginning of the year and, um, we saw, geez, we saw almost every one of them. Maybe, maybe there was one or two that we, we didn't see from the stand or from, um, or walk, you know, bumping them or walking in, but we saw, we saw a really good amount of shooters this year. So I'd say maybe not 10, but at least, at least six or seven that were four year old, four years old or older. And that is, that's incredible. That's an awesome yeah. season right there. I would give, uh, I give my left pinky for that. I'd say, <laughs> right. And I tell you what, pinky, you know, you can take it from me. Uh, your pinky is not <laughs> not that important. You know, I, I didn't even think about you when I made that comment. <laughs> you know, oh, that I've is talked awesome. to a lot of guys. I've talked to a lot of guys online, and they're like, "Hey, you know, Dallas man, you know, I'd give anything to hunt your property." I'm like, "You can't focus on that. Just you know, you got to have fun where you're at." And that's one thing that I wanna I wanna say is we didn't kill a deer this year, and it don't even matter. Me and Ryan, we had so much fun in the in the stand. Uh, yeah, the the bonus was we saw a lot of good deer, but we were laughing. We were having a good time. Yeah, it was hard work, but you know, and I'm sure you know what it's like. You know, sharing a stand with a good friend sometimes it's just it, it almost takes your mind away from hunting. It makes it a lot more relaxing, a lot more enjoyable, and you're able to appreciate it uh, that much more. I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I can definitely relate to that. And, um, like you said, it's, it's, um, there's a lot more than just killing a big deer to, um, to why we enjoy all these things that we do. Right. So that is, that is good. I'm glad, um, I'm glad that Ryan enjoyed himself and you guys saw that action and, and I hope that still you'll, hopefully you'll get another opportunity here before the season ends. Um, I've got all sorts of questions based on some of the things you said that I want to dive into in regards to, you know, some lessons learned. But before we do that, um, I figure I ought to give a quick update on the rest of my rut vacation too. Right. I hang on. I saw, I saw that you're chasing one in Michigan. What that eight pointer that you were telling me about? Yeah. Are you getting close to him at all? Well, I, I got the closest I've gotten yet to him, um, but not close enough. I will say, since we talked last Tuesday, um, when we when we had that conversation, to that point, I had not seen a single buck, not a year-and-a-half-old, not a two-and-a-half-year-old, not a three-and-a-half-year-old, nothing chasing does. Not one. Yeah. And that was kind of crazy. Um, the next day, I went in the woods, got out there bright and early, and the woods just exploded. It was one of those days that's like exactly what you dream of as a deer hunter. I mean, from from the minute it was light out enough to see, I heard chasing. There was crashing in the woods, and then I see a white tail and a doe go bounding through. And then two seconds later, boom, there's another white tail and antlers. And then a few feet away, another tail, another set of antlers. And it was like that literally almost the entire day. I mean, it was one of the one of the best days of hunting I've had in my entire life, at least in regards to overall just action, just keeping me on my toes. Um I saw, I believe, it gets hard to tell because you're seeing so many and I couldn't 
you know, keep track of all of them, but I believe, give or take a few, I saw 14 different bucks on that day. And I saw in one period, I had eight different bucks. I think it was eight different bucks, seven, a, a ridiculous number of bucks all on the tail of one doe. Um, so it was just it was just madness. It was what you see on TV or what you hear about just these chaotic days where there's a hot doe or several in the area and every buck around was there chasing those does. So it was a, just a fun day. I mean, I was on my feet the entire day when my head was on a swivel and just I would spin to the left and there'd be a deer. I'd turn my head to the right, there was a buck and a doe. I turned my head to the left two minutes later, there's another buck chasing a doe. Turn my head back to the right, oh, there's another buck cruising. It was like that the entire day. It was nuts. Um, now, different from you know where you're hunting, the majority of the deer I was seeing were a year and a half old bucks. So I was seeing tons of little six pointers and three pointers and four pointers and stuff like that. But in Michigan, it's still fun to just to see some bucks. But I did see two three year olds um, and one other buck that might have been a three year old. Um, it was hard to say. I, I never saw, was able to get a really good look at his body. He was always in this tall kind of CRP grass. Um, none of them were giants, nothing, you know, incredibly impressive from an antler standpoint, but it was nice to see that the older deer I have on this property were on their feet and chasing does. And one of those deer I saw was that eight pointer that, um, that you mentioned there at the beginning. Um, and, you know, as we've talked about over the course of the year, this these couple of properties in Michigan that I hunt the most, I just haven't been getting mature bucks on camera, not many. Um, the only two bucks that I had on camera, there was one that was a real teeter-totter buck. I wasn't sure if he was three or not um, based on the pictures. He didn't have really good, you know, antler growth. Um, so it, it looked like a set of two-year-old antlers on a, a three-year-old's body. Um, but once the rut hit, you could really start to see his body characteristics clearly defined as a three-and-a-half-year-old. So that deer I kind of dubbed Tiny. I've been calling him Tiny because he's he's a three-and-a-half-year-old, but he's got a tiny rack. So that's what I'm calling him. And then this other buck um, that you mentioned was this eight-pointer, and I'd gotten a handful of pictures of him here and there, but never could quite get a really good look at him. And as I mentioned last week, I finally started getting good pictures. He was all over the place, and um, he's again a three-and-a-half-year-old, nice, solid eight-pointer. And like I said, I saw him chasing does that morning as well as Tiny. And so I decided to call this eight-pointer, I'll call him Big, just so I've got Big and Tiny as my two bucks, three-year-olds running around. <laughs> and my hope is um, Tiny, for sure, I'm I'm going to pass on him and let him get to next year because um, I'd like to see him just turn into a, he'll never be a great scoring buck, I don't think, but he'll just be a solid four-year-old, hopefully get some mass and just cool, a cool deer. And it'd be neat because I've got two years of trail camera pictures of him and tons of encounters now with him. So I'd love to see him make it to next year. And then if big, if he makes it, he'll be a real stud next year. Um, but I'd still love to get a crack at him this year because he's, he's a nice, solid buck. So I saw him Wednesday um, chasing a doe. And then Thursday, I got out and just saw, it was a little slower, I saw five or six bucks, but they were all year and a half olds and, and just a decent number of does, nothing too exciting. Definitely was a lot slower than that Wednesday. And then Friday morning, I moved up to another spot. Um, and, and you know, the tough thing about this property I was hunting is that the majority of the action I was seeing was happening on my neighbor's property. Um, on the property I'm hunting, like I said, the crop fields got plowed under. And so the, the deer weren't bedding in the big swampy bedding areas that they usually do on my farm. Most of the activity was happening on my neighbors. Um, and so because of that, 
I was only able to hunt near the edges sort of my property, but a lot of the action I was seeing happening in this CRP and this cover on his side. And I was just hoping, you know, if I can get close enough to that, maybe a doe will lead him my way. Um, and it just never happened. But Friday morning, I did push up to another kind of around the corner of this property up into as close as I could get to this other bedding area on the neighbors. And that morning, again, I saw a big chasing a doe, this time about a hundred yards away. Um, just, you know, just can never get him to, to come any closer than that. But it was nice to see him on his feet again. He's out there. Um, and, you know, now my plan, and we'll talk more about this in future episodes, but what I do on these Michigan properties, um, because our hunting pressure is so intense down here in southern Michigan, I mean, it's really intense. I mean, every property around me has two to five hunters on it probably. I mean, if I was out there on opening day of gun season, there'd be, there'd be, Literally, I would guess 30 to 40 different hunters in this one block, um, you know, 500 acres or whatever it is, or 800 acres, um, a lot of hunters, and all surrounding right around this property. And so because of that, the tact I've taken on these couple farms is to leave them completely alone during the firearm season and let them become a sanctuary so that any deer being pushed by all these other gun hunters and all the other properties will come into my properties and say, well, hey, there's no one here. This is a safe spot. And then, you know, as you know, I've worked pretty hard in the off season to establish, you know, quality habitat with good bedding cover and good food plots on some of these spots so that when they do get there, they've got the food and cover they need to be comfortable. And my hope is that by doing this, more of these bucks from the surrounding areas will come to my property. They'll make it through the gun season. And that allows me to have, you know, more deer and more success possible after gun season. So December for me is when, when I'll be spending some more time out here um, in that late season, hoping to capitalize on what I call my, my gun season sanctuary strategy. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of what I'm doing right now. I'm leaving these properties alone. I've got a handful of cameras out there hoping to collect, you know, some insight into what's been happening while I'm gone. And so once I, uh, once December hits, I'll sneak out there, check those cameras, see what happened, and then make a make a game plan from there. But that's kind of where things stand for me. Um, you know, I, I headed up to our northern Michigan deer camp for a couple days for the firearm opener. Had a great time up there with my family and friends, and now I'm uh, I'm back down here catching up on some work, catching up on some uh, family time, and biding uh, biding my time till my next uh, adventures here in Michigan or, or maybe Indiana. Are you, now, are you done with other states, or you're going to head back to Indiana, maybe? Yeah, I I think um yeah it's gonna it's gonna depend on um you know just like you I I need to clear make sure make sure good things are good in the home front before I go on any more trips I guess is, is a way to put it <laughs> <laughs> make the wife happy yeah um but assuming um you know all is good on that front um I would like to try to get back to Indiana at some point because. I think there there is some opportunity there, so I would love to get back down there. And then at some point, I'd love to get a, a quick trip to Ohio um, to try to take a doe down there because I know the landowner would love to see us get a few more deer. So I'd love to get down there and, and maybe um, help out Josh drag a big buck out too. So those are my hopes and plans for these next kind of six weeks of the season. Cool. Well, hopefully you uh, you knock something down, man. I know. Like you said, the the further into November and uh, the year that we get, the harder and harder it gets. Yeah, yeah, it really does. Um, but I guess before we dive into that, um, 
we'll talk about that next week and the week after that and, and we'll dive into some late season tactics but today I want to kind of I want to regroup post rut here we've just lived through our 2014 rut vacations and we've had a few days now to decompress and, and to think through some of these things I think that we've experienced and I thought maybe we could do a little bit of a um, a debrief on maybe what you and I have learned from the 2014 rut and and I personally haven't really thought through a lot of these things yet um, but right. I, I've kind of put some different questions together that I think maybe can get our, our brains kind of turning on this and get some conversations started and maybe you and I can uh, uncover a couple of things that we've learned and maybe that will be insightful to the listeners um, or maybe just get them thinking about things that they experienced and, and what they can learn from them so that's kind of my hope for this next uh, 20 30 minutes of the show does that sound uh, sound good I say we do it cool man um well, how about this? I'm, I'm curious, you know, if, if I break down the different things we might have, you know, different categories of lessons we might have learned. The first thing I started thinking about was, you know, purely from a, you know, a deer and deer behavior standpoint, you know, what did we learn about deer, about the rut? Um, so I don't know, Dan, what do you think? For you, did you learn anything over the past couple of weeks about deer behavior or mature buck behavior or the rut in general that you think um, that you could tell us about? Hey, here's a simple but very meaningful gift idea for your mom or grandparent who lives across the country. These are great, dude. These are really nice things to give to people. It's a digital picture frame from Aura. It's perfect for sharing pics of all the things they can't be there for, from family vacations to their grandkids' graduation. Let's say your mom comes out. You take a bunch of pictures of your mom with your kids or whatever. When she goes home, you can greet her at home with all those pictures you just took on the frame. And you can also keep her up to date by updating the frame from afar. It's all done online. It's a ton of fun. Comes with unlimited storage and simple controls on the frame so you can upload as many photos as you want and mom can pick the perfect one. See why it was named the number one digital frame by Wirecutter, The Strategist, and Wired. Right now, you can save on the perfect gift that keeps on giving by visiting AuraFrames.com. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Make sure you use the promo code MEATEATER because for a limited time, you can get $20 off their best-selling frame with that code. The code being MEATEATER. AuraFrames.com, promo code MEATEATER. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now you probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Yeah, I mean, every year I learn a little bit more, I, I say, when it comes to uh, deer behavior. But there, there was a couple things this year that, that really stood out. And the first one was I noticed that a lot of deer were moving with the wind to their back. 
Like they were going with the wind, you know, heading in the direction of the wind. So I was, you know, and what made me think about this is we hunted over this little marsh area and that's where we had the encounter with the big, the big boy. And that's where we saw a majority of the deer movement. They would come out of a finger of timber. They would circle through this draw. They'd follow a, a, a really thick uh, fence line back to another, um, another finger of timber so they had their back to the wind or like they were coming with the wind so the wind was not in their favor coming up one of these ridges and I always thought that that was a no-no but at some point throughout a day I noticed that these bucks are, are, are more and more vulnerable than we think they are once they get the, the females on their mind um, now the mature buck, when he came in, he was, uh, he came in to the, the area that, um, he wanted to scent check where all these does were kind of coming and it's like a staging area before they went out to the, the crops. But we had a Southeast in and he, he came in quartering towards the wind and came along the fence line and he was getting ready before, um, Ryan missed him to jump the fence and leave the area with his back to the wind going with the wind. So I think what I'm, what I'm thinking here is these deer know, have, have a destination in their head. They are specific bedding areas that they know they want to check. They're, they're not out cruising. They, they do have this agenda and, um, they, they go from, you know, for, I don't know, it's like a hierarchy of bedding areas. You know, bedding area one, I'm going to check it. All right. Now I'm going to take the path of least resistance to the, the second bedding area. I don't care what the wind is. I'm going in that direction. Uh, then he'll find the downwind side of that, scent check it, and then go to the next. And it's just basically um, process of elimination. And, and they keep running the circuit until they find a hot doe or, I don't know, they move to another area. That was, uh, that was the, the first thing that really stuck out in my head. Yeah, that's that's definitely something that I've seen too, and I can't remember if we talked about it here if it was on the rules of the rut. But um, did we talk about this study in Texas that basically explains that exact same behavior? Did we talk about that yet? I don't think so. Okay, so there was there was a study down in uh, some institute down in Texas where they GPS collared a whole bunch of different bucks, and and basically what they were looking at was you know is movement during the rut random. You know, like lots of us think with this bucks chasing does all over the place. And what they okay. found. Yeah. We did talk about this. Yeah. Yeah. We did talk about it a little bit. So, yeah. You know, in short, basically what they found is that bucks do exactly what you just said. And, and it's intuitive. We kind of know this. But bucks have, like you said, a series of bedding areas that those are their focal points. And they, the way they spend their time during the rut is cycling through those bedding areas or those doe hot spots. They check one. If they don't find their hot doe there, they move on to the next one. And then, of course, there's a wrench thrown into things when they do find a hot doe and they start chasing. But as soon as they're done with that doe, it's right back to the cycle. Um, And I think there's a lot of truth to what you said, too. And I think, you know, the topic of how deer move with the wind is something that I've 
I really want to dive deeper into because there's so many different opinions on it. You always hear like most of the time bucks like to move with the wind in their favor in some way, or at least with the wind quartering and some are crosswind so they can catch something. But then, you know, you hear sometimes, well, they only want the wind in their face when they're going to move into their bedding area. So they do a J hook down to under to get downwind to their beds. Um, but when they go into feeding areas, they, you know, look at a feeding area with their eyes and they want to smell behind them to, you know, because they can watch ahead of them and they want to smell if there's danger coming from behind. So I've heard so many different takes on this. Yeah. And um, I can't say if I know definitively what I believe anymore because I've seen so many examples of, of every single different possibility. So it's something I think we should, you know, talk to more people about and get more opinions on and, and, and try to set some clear lines of understanding because it's still something that I'm fascinated by and, and equally perplexed, I'd say. Yeah. And I, and I agree with you. The, the thing about, you know, that we're never going to know why deer do certain things or why, how they play the wind is because we will never have that sense. So we can't explain what a deer is doing when we, we don't think like them and we don't smell like them. So you know, we can read it, you know, do scientific research and we can, you know, talk about it all we want. It's just, I think, to be honest with you, it's just one of those things that hunters just have to deal with. Yeah, that's the truth. God, how, how cool would it be if for like just one day, if we could get a deer to like talk in English and explain, <laughs> explain why he does what he does, like how that would just open our eyes to an entirely new world. I've got to imagine. I thought you were going to say the opposite. How cool would it be if we thought like a deer for one day, I was going to say I'd get hit by a car. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm not even going to go there. I, I would do some wild thing. <laughs> Oh, oh geez. Well, You'd be downwind of a, a college bar, wouldn't you? <laughs> in, my, in my younger years, yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, geez. And then, <laughs> oh, boy, here we go. Yeah. Where are we and going then with this? The, the next thing that I noticed, and I, 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 here's kind of another funny story. Like, I just remember my dad never listening to any of my stories about college or anything. He'd, he'd have his, his head down in a newspaper or magazine and <laughs> or watching the TV. And I'd, I'd try to tell him this story and it really wouldn't get his attention until I said something like, well, you know, and then she took her shirt off and then he kind of, he kind of popped his, and I, you know, I'd only say it just to get his attention right? <laughs> and he kind of put his head up and then know that it w- wasn't anything and then put his head back down to ignoring me again. <laughs> well, that is what I kind of saw as far as calling at a mature deer this year. What an awesome analogy, by the yeah, way. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, so we're, we're, we're sitting here and we're watching this, you know, we're watching this big buck work down this fence line and he's a shooter all day and we pull out the grunt call and his ear, the only thing that comes up is his ear. He doesn't even stop moving. You can tell he noticed us, his ear turned back but he had something else on his, he had other places he'd rather be. I mean, there was no does with him. Then we rattled and he was facing away from us when he rattled. He turned around and he looked in our direction and then he turned away. The, then finally we did a snort wheeze, you know, kind of like the last thing we had the wind in our favor, everything. And he stopped and he got real tense and he, he like, 
his ears kind of went back a little bit and you could t tell he was a little bristled up, but then, but then that was it. Then he, then he, he made his way off and man, I don't know. The more I call the less I call because I just don't think these mature deer, you have to catch them at the right exact, the, the perfect moment for them to come into a, a call. I mean, we had, we had yearlings, two year olds and three year olds coming into calls all day long, but those aren't the deer we're after. And if those aren't the deer we're after, why are we calling? You know? So it, it's just one of those things where these mature deer, we didn't really start calling until I'd say maybe the ninth where we would maybe start doing some blind rattling um, we, we did grunt for the most part at these mature bucks, you know, we may not have rattled, but I just don't think they care. I think they have their own agenda. They have their own set of rules they live by. And, uh, very, very rarely they, they would come in if at all, or even care, even care about it. Very interesting. It's, you know, if you don't mind me, well, I'll wait a second because I've got some thoughts on this too, um, from a, from a tactic standpoint. But I've, I guess I'll just dive right into it. Um, I've seen some of the same things myself. Yeah. But at the same time, recently, especially this year, I've seen grunting work better than usual for me. Yeah. Um, but I think I attribute that to something you you pointed out. You said you have to do it at the exact right time. Right. And I think what we were able to do in the couple encounters I had where I was able to grunt at a mature deer was get that timing just right. So right. Uh, let me share three examples. I, I was successful in grunting in three different mature bucks, um, nearly into shooting range or into shooting range. And the first one was the buck I killed. Mm -hmm. The second two were bucks um, while I was filming my buddy Josh. And in two of those times we didn't we waited to grunt until right when he was in an area or, or right about to get onto a trail where he could go we could it'd be very easy for him the path of least resistance would be to come towards us already so it was like at a t so in the case of my buck he was heading towards a, essentially a t in the road if he turned right at the t he'd come my direction if he turned left at the t he would go um away from me as soon as he hit that T intersection is when I grunted. I gave him one guttural deep grunt, and that was enough for him to say, hey, you know what, that's reason enough to continue to, to move to the right. If I'm going to go left or right, I'll check that out, go to the right. And it was easy for him to make that decision. Now, if I grunted um, you know, 30 seconds earlier when he was way up, not at the T, in a totally different section, and it would be much more difficult for him to come straight towards me. He may not have reacted at all, or he may have stood there and listened for a while, and I would have grunted again, and he would have said, eh, I'm a little weird, that's kind of weird, and then I'd snort wheeze at him maybe, and then he'd say, nah, this this seems sketchy, and he'd bail out of there. Right. Um, maybe that's what would happen. Um, scenario number two, um, another buck this time um, the next day, this buck is come cruising across a ridgeline in front of us, and... This ridge goes in front of us, uh, just a, a kind of consistent ridge until it gets to a finger that comes down off that ridge right towards us. And 
this deer is going across the ridge and and I thought to myself as soon as he hits that finger this T again is a T intersection kind of if I, if we grunted to him when he was still on that ridge there'd be no easy way for him to get to us unless he walked you know 50 yards down the ridge and then turned left but I thought if we wait till he gets to that finger right at the intersection where he could if he chooses to do so could very easily come straight down to us that would be the time to do it so we waited and we grunted right when he got to that T intersection and same thing as with, with uh, my buck in Ohio he it was it was just easy we were right there and he was able to drop right down the finger right to us and you know he, he got really close now those two worked pretty well the third instance was the the following day actually i think it was and this time we had a big buck show up and was just out of shooting range and at this point i didn't i didn't see the scenario and if i had better seen the situation now in retrospect i think we could have killed this deer but we saw this buck. He's at 45 or 50 yards, and he's walking away from us, seemingly. And so I, t- I'm, I said, Josh, give him a good hard grunt. So we give him a grunt. He stops and looks, turns and keeps walking away. Grunt one more time, stops, turns, and looks, and keeps going. So what I thought he was going to be doing is I thought he was going to just keep on walking away. What I didn't realize, and I should have known, I should have remembered this, but there's a deep ravine right between us and him that I that I couldn't see because of some cover. But there was this, like, seven-foot ravine, this deep cut that that buck was not going to jump across to come get to us because he wasn't that interested. If we had waited until he walked further down where he was going, because now, as I remember, I watched him walk down. As he walked, continue the way he went, he would eventually hit a crossing where all the deer get to this crossing, they cross that cut, and then they continue onto our ridge and would have walked right parallel beneath us at 35, 40 yards. If we had waited to grunt or not grunt at all, he probably would have walked down, got to that crossing, and he might have continued the way he was going. At that point, maybe we would grunt to him, um, and maybe he would have been, it would have been easier for him to make the decision to just hop over that little crossing. Or we might not have needed to grunt at all because he would have already taken that path of least resistance and given us that shot opportunity. But I think we preemptively grunted at a time when he couldn't react positively, forcing us to overcall and to eventually you know lose that opportunity so i think that's something i learned when it comes to calling to these mature deer is really think through when the best time would be and and try to time it to make it as easy as possible for that buck to to positively respond right yeah i I do those same things man i I know for a fact we didn't overcall on some of these deer um one grunt maybe two and that's it and we would we would give up at that point because you know the last thing you want to do is spook them and if they're not going to come they're not going to come yeah yeah for me i've definitely gone the same way um my rule's been i'll do one contact grunt if i can get their attention with that great nothing else if he keeps going i'll do one more just to make sure i got his attention now if, if i've got his attention okay that's the first thing i need to know is if it's one grunt or two grunts whichever gets his attention great at that point if he still decides he's not interested and he keeps going i'll try one snort wheeze so it, it perfect scenario is i do one grunt he looks at me i know he sees me or not sees me but has recognized there's a call if he still doesn't respond, then the snort wheeze. And that's like, okay, I tried to get his attention. That didn't work. Now I'm going to get him pissed. If that doesn't work, then I'm then I'm done. But back when I was, you know, back in the day, I used to grunt and snort wheeze and grunt and then try can call and then I try rattling and then I try gr- everything I could do until he walked out of sight. <laughs> but that's right. definitely not the way to go. But back in the back in the heyday, that was, you know, 
Like you just keep trying and keep trying and keep trying, hoping something will work in your bag of tricks. But like you said, it's it's much better to, to quit while you're still ahead rather than risk spooking them. That's a fact. That is a fact. Um, now, one other thing I, I want to bring up, um, that thing I, I just mentioned there was kind of related to a strategic lesson I learned. But one other thing I also kind of was reminded about this season when it comes to deer behavior is just how hot and cold deer behavior is during the rut and and what the how that translates into action and i thought it was bad last year but this year was even worse for me actually it sounds like you had um a little more action but for me like 90 percent of my hunting over the course of this rut was dead i mean really 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 slow amounts of deer movement and um and then there's those periods of chaos and tons of movement and i think that's in a lot of cases what the rut looks like because you've got um you know, the doe movement in general starts to change compared to what it is during the rest of the year because does begin evading bucks and they start going into thicker cover and trying to get away from their harassment. Um, and then you get to a period where all of a sudden you've got all the bucks chasing a couple does or a couple hot does. And if that hot does in your area, you've got the action. But if the hot does aren't in your area, you're not seeing the action. And then you get to the lockdown phase where then these bucks are actually locking down and starting to breed. And that's another slow period. Um, so it really can be, you know, we've talked about this before, but it really is just a patience game. You have to get in these areas that you're confident about, and then you just need to come to terms with the fact that you might be in for some very frustrating, long and slow sits, but you need to wait it out for those periods of 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 action, those hot periods, because it will come if you're in these spots that you have confidence in and that you're in there for good reason. But in general, I mean... If anything, it just keeps on hammering home to the fact to me that the the idea of the rut being this crazy, chaotic, exciting um, whirlwind of action for two weeks, at least for me, and, and I think for the majority of deer hunters out there who are hunting in, in most of these you know average deer hunting states like Michigan, Pennsylvania, New York, um, Wisconsin. I mean, some of these other areas that maybe aren't the the hot spots with incredible populations of deer and, and trophy management and a lot of these areas it's going to be really hot and cold and it's going to be tough at times and it, it just comes down to having that confidence and sticking it out yeah man as far as a rut is concerned i'm not when i think what people think of the rut is like you said that whirlwind that crazy chasing and stuff but when i think of the, the rut i think of the rut is the breeding season, the breeding, the, the three weeks where a majority of the breeding is done. And um, on our farm, I bet you I saw – I this year I did not see any hard chasing where a doe would run through an area and there would be three or four bucks after. I, I didn't see that one time. Um, we saw some bucks giving pressure to does, but I – of all the mature deer that we we saw, the, you know, maybe the seven that were over four years old, only one of those encounters was with a buck or a, the buck tailing a doe, trailing a doe. The the rest of them they were they were moving by themselves, which makes me think that this year the 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 breeding season was later and not earlier, like the rut prediction said. Yeah, that's another interesting thing to to consider when it comes to all the the timing of the breeding and everything. And I think, um, you know, I'm still a um, a believer in the fact that 
I'm still sticking with a biologist point of view on the timing in yeah. that across most, especially at least north of the Mason-Dixon line, the northern part of the country. I know down south it gets kind of wonky, um, but in areas that you and I hunt, you know, pretty much consensus, the biologists, the biologists say that the, almost all breeding, the the high point of the bell curve, because like you said, breeding takes place over a period of weeks, but the, the high point of that period happens in the middle of November. And then there's, you know, slightly less going down either side of that. But I do think that there are these other factors that, that impact how much of this activity we see, the chasing, the cruising, all those different things. And so I don't, I, I still don't know, you know, what the deal is with this rut. If it was, um, you know, I just really thought with, um, you know, all these different factors, whether it be the moon prediction theories or the fact that we have really good cold weather in a lot of parts across the country. Um, a lot of the spots I was hunting with good cold weather. I thought that would lend itself to seeing a lot more daylight running activity. Um, and I just didn't see that it to the degree I was hoping for and expecting it to. Um, but I, I still believe it was happening. Yeah. Um, I just don't know. I, I might not have been in the right places at all the right times. And, and like I also, I mean, another point for me, just in my unique instance, um, I didn't spend as much time in the woods. I was tracking deer, you know, three days. I was changing yep. properties two days. I was doing a handful of different things. So that, that impacted things a bit too. But I mean, I guess you saw similar things to a degree too. Right. Yeah. You know, I never saw that peak, you know, that I saw a lot of movement, but we never saw a lot of chasing. Um, and one thing that I talked to Ryan about in what we we're seeing is I think we had an equal amount of does and bucks, which, which can be bad because then you start having, uh, you know, it's not hard for a buck to find a doe. You know, if, if one's locked up, if one buck is locked up with a doe, there's another one to match him. So I think that, I think there was an equal um, buck to doe ratio, which just meant that as these does were coming in, into their cycle, uh, it, it made it easier for these bucks to find them and hook up with them. And, and it, I don't know if it was all coming at one time or that or if it kind of plateaued, there was not a, a, the giant peak like you see. I think it just was like the breeding season is happening and now it's over, you know, just kind of like very gradual and not, not the spike that we would typically see. Yeah, it was, it was an interesting one. I'd be curious to hear from, you know, some of our listeners out there. If you, um, I'd love to get your guys' perspective on this too. If you want to shoot us a Facebook message um, or comment um, you know, on the blog post for this um, for this podcast, I'd love to hear what you've seen in regards yeah. to cruising and chasing and running activity um, and, and to hear if this matches up at all with what, what Dan and I have seen. Um, because I think you know the more we can hear from other people, that might also help us come to some better conclusions about what's going on and, and what we can learn from it. Right, and what state you're hunting in. And then you know maybe we can talk about that one of the next upcoming podcasts. Yeah, I think that'd be great. So make sure you guys go to wiredtohunt.com slash episode 33, which will be the blog post for this podcast. And uh, leave us a leave us your observations in the comments there. That would be awesome if you could do that. Um, moving on, though, I guess from that, Dan, anything from a strategy or tactic standpoint that you learned? For me, it would be the, the calling aspect, I think. For me, yeah. the timing of my calling, that's one of the things that, you know, I'm getting better at is, is knowing when to push those buttons. But what about for you? Is there anything from a tactic standpoint that you think you would um, that you could take away from the season, run wise? It's it's hard. 
because when I think of strategies and tactics, I think of the same thing that I've always been doing, but making minor adjustments along the way. And, you know, working the trail cameras over the scrapes and the pinch points and, and then using that information to, to, to make your stand location choice. I just think this year, one thing I learned was you don't necessarily have to be in the perfect spot the first time into the area. This time of year, you can get away with a little bit more uh, um, error as far as going into an area. Don't be afraid to set up an observation stand. I sat an observation stand with uh, one day with Ryan and one day by myself before I tore it down. Heck, I think three days total we sat in this one stand and then decided, okay, there's going to be a shift in this wind. Uh, it's going to come out of the northwest. We need to move it to the east side of this marsh so our wind is blowing into a cornfield and not into the marsh. And and the next day, it was rotating all the way to a southeast, 180 degrees, and blowing into this this pasture. And that was the day that this buck came in. He you know he felt he had the wind in in his advantage, and uh, we ended up getting the shot. But you know we're realizing that you know, slow down, get that observation stand. And if you're not a hundred percent where to go, cause you don't know the, the property or you don't have the exact tree trimmed out, set up back from that location. And then if you get that information, you see that deer movement, that, that Intel, then you can, you know, take your stand down after a morning hunt and go right to that tree set up and then just wait. And maybe it's the right tree, maybe it's not, but, you know, keep, keep moving, keep bouncing, keep, you know, keep making those minor adjustments because really hunting is micromanaging. Um, the, the, all the big stuff is done before the season and, and as for the way I hunt, I'm, I'm always moving, always trying to get that, that next best, you know, that next best advantage, chasing that wind, you know. And, and not just planning for planning for that specific win for that specific hunt look it's like a chess match look two or three wind directions into it and set a stand for that location and back out and then come into it another time uh, you don't necessarily need to hunt it although a lot of people would disagree with me if you're going to go in to a, an area to set a stand hunt it and I agree with that I agree with that but if if for some reason that strategy isn't working for you to you know go in have it have a set where you're going to be in there and know you might may not see anything in in preparation for the next day when the wind shifts to have a to have a completely different view of what the area holds hey here's a simple but very meaningful gift idea for your mom or grandparent who lives across the country these are great, dude. These are really nice things to give to people. It's a digital picture frame from Aura. It's perfect for sharing pics of all the things they can't be there for, from family vacations to their grandkids' graduation. Let's say your mom comes out. You take a bunch of pictures of your mom with your kids or whatever. When she goes home, you can greet her at home with all those pictures you just took on the frame. And you can also keep her up to date by updating the frame from afar. It's all done online. It's a ton of fun comes with unlimited storage and simple controls on the frame so you can upload as many photos as you want 
and mom can pick the perfect one. See why it was named the number one digital frame by Wirecutter, The Strategist, and Wired. Right now, you can save on the perfect gift that keeps on giving by visiting AuraFrames.com. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Make sure you use the promo code MEATEATER because for a limited time, you can get $20 off their best-selling frame with that code. The code being MEATEATER. AuraFrames.com, promo code MEATEATER. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now, you probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. I think you make a lot of, I think you make a lot of good points there. Um, and something that I've, I've struggled with on a couple of those different things there, you know, two things for me. Um... Number one, you know, over the years, I've been, I've definitely been guilty of getting lazy when it comes to knowing I should probably move somewhere else, but not wanting to deal with tearing a stand down, hiking over to a new area, putting a new stand up, putting the camera gear back up, pulling my bow back up, pulling my backpack back up, doing all that stuff. It sucks. Yeah. It's a pain in the butt, but just year after year, I keep on getting reminded that you just sometimes you need to do it. And that, you know, half an hour of annoying extra work is going to be something you'll forget about 10 years from now when you look back and remember the encounter you had there or the deer you shot there because you made that move. And so I just, you know, constantly trying to remind myself to, to do that. And I did that more this year. I did made, I made more moves. I did some more, you know, hanging stands and new spots and it paid off. So I think that's definitely a lesson learned for me too. And then another point, you said something, well, two things. You mentioned the fact that, um, you know, you shouldn't be afraid to to set up observation stands and learn an area. And I 100% agree with that. I think that's a great way to go in there and learn spot, figure out what the action is. Um, but then you, it does come down to, well, as bow hunters, you can only learn so much from seeing deer at a distance. Right. Eventually, you need to move in for the kill. And good enough is not good enough when it comes to bow hunting because bow hunting is a game of inches and feet right. and yards. And if you are close and you're getting that buck at 48 yards, yeah, that feels close. He's right there in your, in your, you know, in your wheelhouse. But if you can't get a quality shot at a deer, that stand is crap. And when yep. it comes right down to it, you need to be setting stands after – after you set your observation stand, let's say you've learned about the action or maybe you set there and you realize you're 50 yards off of the, you know, off of where you need to be, you have to get in there. I've spent too many days, you know, over the past, you know, five, 10 years sitting in stands that I kept sitting because I was seeing the big buck. I could see him out there. He's a hundred yards out or he's 80 yards out. Eventually he'll get closer and I'll see him out there the next night or a week later. And again, he's still too far away. And then I'm out there a month later because I still see him from that stand and he's still too far away. Yep. Um, 
it doesn't cut it when it comes to bow hunting. You need to move in and set up for the kill eventually. And you shouldn't be afraid to do that. And you don't be too lazy to do that. You need to go in there and you need to get into range. And if you set up and you try and it doesn't work out, you need to try again, like you said, and keep tweaking and keep micromanaging and keep moving those chess pieces across the board. Because um, close is not close enough for these deer when it comes to bow hunting. So I think that's another big takeaway for me. Right. Move in. It's like, I don't know. You nailed it. Don't be afraid. Yeah. Yep. Because so, what's what's the worst thing that could happen? You watch that buck go by again at fifty yards, right? That, that that's it. I mean, you're never going to get a shot on him. You have to go for it eventually. If you're if you're serious about it, you can either you know, would you rather have, hey, I got to see a big buck three times, great, or would you like to say I got to see a big buck once and the second day I killed him? I'd much right. rather have the second story. Right. Or 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 shot him in the guts or hit his antler. <laughs> well, you, we, we'd rather avoid those two endings <laughs> yeah that's, i'm uh, giving you crap uh yeah you know I, at least i didn't hit one in the antler that that's a story at least i don't need to tell for myself that well, one I, yeah i tell you what um that broadhead still might be in his antler because it busted off the arrow how cool would that shed find be <laughs> oh my god i'd lose my mind uh i called dibs that's what I'm, <laughs> that's what i'm finding this spring <laughs> Oh geez. Okay, so we're we've put a pretty good chunk of time in here, but I wanted to maybe combine two questions in one, and maybe this will be how we wrap it up here, Dan. Okay. Number one, what do you believe is the biggest mistake you made this rut? And then maybe kind of following in that that question's footsteps, what's the biggest thing or the one thing for sure you want to do differently this coming year? next year 2015 why don't you start this off i I need to think about that a second crap that was my angle (laughs) (laughs) okay okay but i'll I'll give it a shot i'll give it a shot okay i think um i think my biggest mistake was i think doing something that i mentioned right there which i I just mentioned as something that is a mistake people make and I, i mentioned that because it's a mistake i've seen myself make and I tried to fix that wrong. I tried to fix that towards the end of my time here in Michigan, but I, it was because I realized I was screwing up. And this is a mistake I've made over the past three, four years on a couple of these properties where I've gotten really comfortable with a couple areas that I always see these big deer from during the rut. And I have these encounters, and they seem close, but I'm never getting the shot opportunity. And so I've wasted a lot of, oppor- I've wasted a lot of seasons and hunts, even this year, thinking, well, this will be the time when he's going to come close enough and he just hasn't. And, um, that happened again, you know, in Michigan a couple times. And I, I made the change the last couple of days of my time here in Michigan. And next year, I'm really going to change that and that I'm going to, st- and this is just something you've talked about before, Dan, you've harped on field edges, how you, you know, you want to get into that cover as much as possible. And I've tried to defend occasionally having to hunt field edges sometimes, and sometimes you have to. Um, but there is a really, in it. If you can get into the cover during the rut, I really still do believe that you're going to have more activity during daylight because these does during the rut, they don't really want to be out in the big food sources as much as usual because they're getting harassed by bucks all the time. So you're getting these does spending at least less time out in the open, so they're farther back in the cover. You've got the bucks 
cruising for does or maybe chasing does, but either one of those two things, the majority, not always, but the majority of that is still happening back in cover. And especially here in Michigan, every day from November through November 15th, hunting pressure is increasing. You've got more bow hunters in the woods, and then as you get closer to the November 15th firearm season opener, you've got more gun hunters coming into the woods to scout or put their blinds up or do whatever. So every day closer to the end of that rut hunting bow period, you know, there's more pressure on these deer on top of the fact that already they want to stay in the cover. So those two things, I think, continue pushing these deer back into safe cover areas. And so I have, you know, uh, notoriously on these couple properties, been always afraid to push too deep into the heart of things. I've kept some sanctuary areas that I've always tried to keep as off-limits areas to keep the the big bucks on my properties. And I think there's warrant for that. I think there's um, value to doing that, you know, in some of these areas where I'm hunting some small parcels with extreme hunter pressure all around me. And so I think I want to continue to do that, continue doing that throughout the most of the year. But then during the rut period, it's okay to swing for the fences sometimes. And I wish that I had gone in there with a climbing tree stand or my portable stand and pushed deep into the swamp and got real close up into these bedding areas and sat back in there a couple times. And yeah, yeah, I probably would have spooked some deer. And yeah, I might have busted some deer pushing in there and hanging a stand. But I think if I was going to get an opportunity, it would have been if I pushed into those spots, if I were to go into those bedding areas and um, and stop kind of pussyfooting around the edges as much. So I think my big my mistake was being still in something I've gotten better at every year, but I'm still too conservative to a degree. And so next year I just want to take that um, I want to take that aggressiveness one step further. Um, I will say I will add one disclaimer that I did. Um, this is me patting myself on the back. Um, so give me this little brief moment to feel good about myself, Dan. <laughs> um, I did take this advice of my own and I implemented it in in Ohio. I had this gut feeling that I wanted to be right inside this bedding area um, on that you know morning of November sixth. I didn't have a stand there, you know. Past me, me three years ago would have said, "Well, I've got to stand 150 yards from there. It's safer. It's easier to get to. I don't need to hang anything. I'll just hunt there. I'll have a good view. That'll be great." Um, but present me said, "Nope. I need to get right into this one specific spot. I know it's going to be a pain in the butt to get in there and hang a stand in the morning, but I'm going to do it." And I did it, and I killed a you know mature buck because of it. So I think that was, again, proof to me that this is something I need to start implementing wholesale across my strategy during the rut, um, whether it's Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, um, a property I'm just learning or a property I've been hunting forever. I want to you know continue to push that limit and not, uh, not be so comfortable on the edges. That's my, my big takeaway, I think. Good. Makes a lot of sense, man. Yeah. Did you, uh, did I, basically what I was trying to do, there was just ramble for a long time to give you adequate time to, to figure out your answer. <laughs> did I give you time? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. I, I mean, okay. So we're talking about the biggest mistake and then what we're going to do different next year. Right. Yeah, yeah. All right. So one thing that I have a problem with is overanalyzing. Um, I'll look at a map, I'll look at wind direction, I'll look at what locations I need to be in and I'll just sit there and think and overthink and, and I think one thing I, I need to get better at is probably just pulling the trigger and saying, let's do it. You know, just, just let's go. It doesn't have to be the perfect spot right away. Cause if you see something, you, you, you dive in deeper. If you don't see something, you, you move out. And, um, you know, like this year and we did it, we did it fairly well. Um, there was one instance where I think we probably could have improved our stand location, um, a little bit further up 
on this uh, on this ridge where these deer were traveling, or maybe um, trimmed another couple shooting lanes, but we ended up uh, not doing it. So uh, I don't know why we talked ourselves out of it or or what our reasoning um, was for was for not doing it. But I know that I overanalyze my stand placements a lot. Oof, you and me both. Yeah. So. So that's, that's one thing. And I'm going to get to what my corrective action is going to be for next year. But my second thing is get to the stand. And I'm, what I mean by that is a lot of guys will, will sit there, they'll tiptoe through the woods, which, you know, is good. You got to be quiet. But for me, we took our time. We glassed the entire way in. We try to be as quiet as possible when when I, I really don't think a lot of that matters. The most important thing is your, your scent. The more time you're taking to get to the timber, the more your scent is cast out into the hunting area and the, le- the, you know, the less chance you have of catching a buck come down, you know, downwind from you. So, you know, I, I think we just took a little bit too long to get to the stand and we, we weren't to the stand early enough. I mean, in some instances we were, and it sucks because we were getting up at 3.40 every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I really think that we needed to get to the stand even just a little bit earlier, maybe 40 minutes earlier, and let that timber settle down. And, and as you know, yeah. we have we have uh, camera equipment we were setting up and clicks and little ratchet straps here and there that, that we really needed to just – and, you know, I don't even know if I'm going to be filming next year. I'm thinking I might just be hunting, um, which will alleviate a lot of that stress. Yeah. But give give the timber some time to settle down before prime time. And, you know, for the people who hunt all day, that's not really an issue. But if you're like myself and like to move around a lot, like to um, have a, a specific morning and evening hunt, that's something that uh, um, I think I'm going to try to do better on next year. Yeah, if you don't mind, I'd, I'd comment on a couple things there really quick. Um, yeah. Man, I'm right there with you when it comes to getting in there early. Um, yeah, I've got some friends, and they've been very successful, you know, killing quality deer um, that just don't – they don't get to their stands very early. And I just um, – I really personally think that if you're not getting to your tree stand, for me personally, my t- I think an hour before daylight is the minimum time for me before – for when I'm getting on a morning stand, I want to be there at least an hour before daylight because to, to your point, I really think you need to let, you need to let things calm down because inevitably there's a good chance you're, even if you plan everything right, you still can spook deer going into your stand in the morning. And I hate doing that. And, right. um, gosh, that's, I hate, there's nothing more. I hate more than coming in and out of tree stands and spooking deer. Right. I just get so mad every time I hear a snort or a crash. It just ugh, drives me nuts. Right. And it stresses me out to, to, to so many crazy degrees. So I, I'm i right there with you. Get in there as early as you possibly can, especially if you're trying to film. I try to get in an hour and a half beforehand so I have enough time to you know, monkey around with all my camera gear and get set up and everything. Um, but then to two things. Let's say you're walking in during the afternoon or even in the morning. Um, I try my very best to get in there as quietly as possible. I love those mornings where there's wind or it's been raining and the leaves right. are quiet. Then you can get in there just great. I love a morning like that. But when it's those days when it's just crunchy as all get out and you just know that anything you know within a mile can hear you pretty much, those days drive me nuts. And this year I got to the point 
where I said, I'm walking so incredibly slow. I'm taking one little tiny step. And then I'm taking one little tiny step, and I'm making this big crunch every time I step, and I'm stressing about it. And it takes me an hour to get to my tree stand because I'm trying to go so slow. Deer are still hearing me. I'm just making noise for an hour. Right. Maybe the better thing would be just to cruise into my tree stand and realize I'm making a ton of racket, but get there in 15 minutes. And, okay, I caused some chaos in the woods for 15 minutes, but now there's 45 minutes of quiet versus an hour of noise that just continued for a long and slow period. I'm leaning more towards the fact that sometimes it's better just to, if you know you're going to make a lot of noise no matter what you do, just bum rush in there and get in there and then let it quiet down the rest of the time period. So that's one thing I'm you know, leaning more and more towards, which brings me to a final quick point. I Sorry, I, I kind of jumped in the middle of your No, you're fine. Your thing here. Um, but this you're the is boss, man. Well, I'm, I'm not the boss. I'm just the one that talks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is an interesting thing I picked up from Bill Winkie like last year. And then I went and I actually wrote an article about it for North American Whitetail, picked Bill's brain a little bit more about it and some other people. And this idea of actually running to your tree stand during the rut. And it, it follows the same logic I just said there. And that sometimes if you know you're going to make a ton of noise, you just accept that. You accept, okay, I'm going to make noise. Deer are going to hear me. So then you start thinking, well, how can I minimize that damage done? And the logic behind a friend of Bill's was that if you run to your tree stand, you get to your stand as quickly as possible. So now instead of you know, making noise for an hour, you make noise for five minutes. But if you make enough noise and you do it in such a way, you might actually be able to get away with that noise because at this time of year, deer are used to hearing crashing in the woods. Mm-hmm. They hear bucks chasing does all the time. So if you can almost um, simulate that kind of sound when you go crashing into your tree stand, you might be able to get away with it. They're almost more likely to forgive a quick sprint of crashing past them than they would accept a slow, steady gait for 35 minutes walking around the edge of this you know, bedding area where they're sitting there and they hear step, step, step. They identify that as a human. If they're hearing crash, 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 that's something you might be able to get away with. So that's it's a really interesting kind of crazy idea, but it starts to make a lot of sense when you think about it. Um, and it's something I've been thinking a lot about too, and I think it's, it's influencing how I start accessing my stands on these loud days. Um, so I guess that's, that's my little tangent on access that I've been kind of thinking about and kind of related to what you're saying there. So sorry about that. Hey, no problem. So what was it? What do we want to do different next year? Yeah. All right. So this is going to sound crazy. But yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go out and I'm going to do what I always do. I'm going to go this this uh, summer. I'm going to go to my key locations, my, my tree stands that I've always hunt. I'm going to go and I'm going to set them. I'm going to trim, trim them out. Um, but I'm not going to leave any stands there. Which, what this gives me is a surplus of stands now that I, if I need to, I can go back to those locations. I don't have to do any trimming, just set the stand up. But what I'm noticing on, especially the properties that I hunt is the hot points of movement, the intersection points from the bedding to the food sources, the cruising has always been a little bit different every year. And when I mean a little bit different, I mean, 40 yards, 30 yards, but for a bow hunter, that's important. Yeah. So I think what I'm going to do is wait until I start hunting hard 
um, or even into October where, where I'm, you know, hunting majority, um, travel corridors towards food sources. Um, I'm going to wait and, and find those areas to hunt those stands or to, you know, move into an area and hang a brand new, brand new set, trim out some lanes and, and just, and just run and gun way more than what we did because we had, I want to say close to on, on this property that I hunt, you've, you've seen it. I had 10 stands that were pre, um, pre trimmed out. I didn't have a stand for every one of those locations, but we only hunted three of those, of those 10 stands this year. Wow. So we did a ton of running and gunning. And I think that's why we had such a, a well, I'm going to call it a successful uh, season this year. Every time we went into one of these locations was the best time we had. Typically that night or that morning was the best, um, uh, that location, that specific stand location had to offer. And if I would have went to another stand or the, my typical stand in that area, I would have been way off or never even seen some of these deer. So I think it's more, you, you can't, you can't put as much planning into it as, as we think you should. You know, we think I'm going to have a stand location in every one of these uh, spots uh, and the deer are going to come by there. Well, they're not. They're going to their their patterns change every year. At least that's what I'm seeing. Granted, there are a couple spots where, you know, we call our our best stands or our money stands. But I think I'm just going to I'm going to try to go more with the flow instead of putting together some kind of plan of what I'm going to do for every hunt, if that makes sense. More, more, more of a natural movement than a planned movement. I, I think you're, I think you're right on And I love that. And I think it, it alludes to something kind of to what, you know, both of us have been saying kind of throughout this last half hour is that so many times when we go in there, we try to fit our strategy. We try to fit the deer. We try to convince ourselves that the deer are going to work to our plans. Right. So exactly. we, we set our stands based on what we assume the deer will do. Right. We make our best decisions. And then there's the temptation to, to be so, um, so stuck in our plans that we stay there and we don't adjust to what the deer are telling us. And I think doing what you're doing, I don't know if I have the, the gonads to do that because I don't think I'd enjoy setting up a new stand every time I hunt, but good for you. Cause I think in a lot of ways, that's the right way to do it because you will never be tempted to take the easy solution. You'll never be tempted to say, eh, I'm just going to hunt that stand cause it's pretty close to the area and I've got my stand set up there. Um, I'm going to be tempted with that because I'll have 15 stands or five stands or whatever it is on a given property. Um, you'll simply go in there and say, where's the absolute best spot for this morning with this wind, given what I know most recently, right. where do I need to hang? And you'll go do that. And that will put you in the very absolute best possible place to get a kill. Right. And that's really how we should be thinking every time we go into hunt. Um, so I love it. And just to, just to elaborate on that and what, what made me think about this is let's, let's look at the first two people who come to my mind when you say big buck killers are Dan Infault and Andre DeAcosto, right? Those, those are the two guys that they, that come to my mind. They, they have a, a, um, 
a stand on their back and they go into an area and they find the best possible location. And, and that's, and that's what they do. And, you know, their resume shows that they, that they kill giant deer. And yeah. I think, I think as, as if you want to be a quote unquote good hunter, you have to learn how to, how to be as mobile as possible and think on the fly and not plan, you know, there's a little bit of planning, but it's, dude, it's an art. It's a feel. And I think, I think the more that um, predators like ourselves get to that, then I think, uh, I think we're going to kill bigger deer. Yeah. I think there's a or lot more mature deer. There's a lot of truth to that. And to all these things we're saying, there's always exceptions. Exactly. Right? Um, there's always going to be situations where, you know, you can plan these things out, especially when you're doing some of the habitat management things where you can start manipulating habitat to, you know, to encourage movement where you want it. And so sure there's, there's ways to do that. And I know there's people having success that way, but I think given the situations that you and I are hunting in and that I think a lot of other guys are hunting in, especially guys hunting public land or, you know, private land with four other guys hunting it too. I think real. I think these types of tactics really are the direction that we need to be heading. So I'm sure we're going to explore it some more and, um, we'll continue picking the brains of deer hunters who are better than us and try to yeah. learn a few things from them. And hopefully you and I can continue to grow and our listeners can learn a thing or two and, um, we'll have some good stories to share from it. Right. I mean, when it all comes down to it, man, if you're stuck in the same rut, we all want the same thing. We all want that story we can share with our friends or, you know, when someone says, Hey man, how's your season going? You whip out your phone and you, sh- you pull up this booner or it doesn't have to be a booner the biggest buck in your area, the, 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 the deer that on your property, you, you caught on trail camera or you saw from the stand and you went, Oh my God, that is a stud buck. I don't care what his score is or what his age class is. If that, if that's the deer that makes you go, Whoa, and you kill it, you know, because, because you tried something different and that's all we want. That is an awesome feeling right there. That's what it's all yeah. about. So that's, that's why we do what we do. That's fact. So, well, I think, Dan, this is a good place for us to wrap it up because um, this is getting to be a long show. We've had some really long episodes lately, so I, I hope people are okay with that. <laughs> yeah, but, one quick thing, man. I, I'm seeing people falling out of the tree stands, and it pisses me off. Yeah. Like A uh, guy I know, his dad fell out of the tree stand, huge shoulder reconstruction. A guy at work uh, fell out of his tree stand. He had to bail, uh, jumped off 20 feet, uh, broke his ankle. Uh, so he can't hunt anymore. Wow. Um, so if you're someone who's listening to this and doesn't wear a safety harness, you're stupid. <laughs> <laughs> there is your Dan Johnson advice for the day right there. Right. No, right. it's so true though. Gotta have to do that. It's just not worth it. Right. Close down shop, Mark. I got to go pick up my daughter. All right. We're going to shut her down here. And, um, I guess as we always ask, if you have time, if you've been enjoying the show, if you go to iTunes, it's really easy to get to. You can go on your internet browser and get there, or you can, if you've got the iTunes application, pull it up, go to the podcast store, look up Wired to Hunt, go to the ratings and review tab there, and leave us a rating and review. Say a little bit of what you think about the podcast. That is just a huge, huge, huge help. It helps people figure out, you know, is this podcast worth listening to? And it helps us move up in the rankings so that new people can find out about Wired to Hunt. From what I've heard from listeners out there, this seems to be helping people, and I love to hear that, and I would just love to help more people. So if you can um, you know, join us in that mission, 
we would appreciate it. Uh, we've gotten 108 awesome reviews so far. And gosh, it, it just makes my day every time I read one of those. So, so please know I read every single one of your reviews. It puts a smile on my face, and I just we sincerely, sincerely appreciate it. So, thank you. Have um, you gotten any negative reviews yet? Like Mark Kenyon's dumb, and his <laughs> co-host is even dumber. <laughs> you know, I I have not gotten a review on iTunes like that. Um, okay. I've had plenty of nasty things said about me elsewhere, but not on <laughs> iTunes yet. <laughs> So, you know, Sorry to <laughs> so far, so good. Um, the only negative thing we've heard in a review so far, we've gotten all five star reviews except for like three. I think there's three four star reviews. And um, the I think the two negative things I've heard is they don't put out enough episodes. So they want more than once a week. And then someone said they don't talk about turkeys enough. So <laughs> it's not springtime yet. I know. And we're a deer hunting podcast. So, you know, it's kind of outside of our scope. But, well, we will make that one person happy, and we'll give them a an episode about turkey hunting this spring. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll talk turkeys. We'll gobble gobble for them a couple times. Right. So, right. I'm glad that most everyone's is pretty happy with what we're doing here, and we're just going to try to keep on making it better and better every week. So, that said, be sure to visit wiredtohunt.com/slash/episode33 for show notes and links from this episode. Um, and also, you know, as we talked about, if you could go there and leave us a comment, you know, detailing how you've seen the rut so far, what kind of activity you've seen, cruising, chasing, etc. We'd love to get that observation from you. Tell us what state you're in, where you're hunting, and um, that I think would be a great resource for all of us to go look at. Um, also, be sure to check out Dan's blog, The Nine Finger Chronicles, to uh, check out the videos he's going to be posting soon and other updates from his season. Um, I know you got some good stuff up there, Dan. And finally, we'd like to thank our partners who help make this show possible, who keep us on the air, who have supported us so much over the year. So big thanks to Sitka Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Carbon Express Arrows, Huntsoft, Lacrosse Boots, Big and J Long Ridge Tractants, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. Thank you so much, all of you, for joining us today on the Wired to Hunt podcast. I really hope that your adventures during the rut so far have been you know, everything you've dreamed of. But if not, don't give up. There's plenty of season left, so get after it, hunt hard, and stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.